Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe. I'm Thomas Hill. I'm very pleased and delighted to have as my guest on the program this week Wendy Graham, Professor of English and Chair of the Department of English here at Vassar College. Wendy's going to be speaking about her most recent book, Critics, Coteries, and Pre-Raphaelite Celebrity, published by Columbia University Press in 2017. Hello, Wendy. Hi there. Great to have you on the show. So my first question, sort of a global question about Victorian studies, I'm interested in the impetus or the motive for a monograph on pre-Raphaelitism from both an art historical and a literary perspective. It always seems to me that there's an awful lot about 19th century culture per se that lies somewhat submerged by the modernist movement of the early 20th century, but that can help us to understand the whole phenomenon of, well, the 19th century itself, which is extremely interesting, but also the phenomenon of modernism itself and its origins. So am I right to think that we suffer from a sort of culturally induced amnesia concerning the uh, 19th century, and perhaps that's why when we do look back on that period, it seems so new and relevant to us. Well, I would agree, and I also think, I mean, the whole tenor of my research is towards avoiding or critiquing periodization, Uh and Uh so as a person who writes about the 19th century and notices anti-bourgeois, anti-industrial, rage even as early as the romantics somehow when you get into modernism or the idea of the avant-garde we're told that they are uniquely anti-bourgeois <laughs> anti-technological <laughs> so, uh-huh. and so the focus on the world war one period on the uh-huh. emergence of certain kinds of technology and perhaps particularly the idea that modernists are people who enjoy modernity rather than revile it Uh seemed to me an extremely simplistic way of understanding the experience of modernity. Uh So when I looked at 19th century American literature, for example, which is my training, Uh and I see alarm but also excitement about things being sped up, the railway or Uh the effect of going by tenements or apartment houses on the elevated and seeing them as kind of cells in Uh a motion picture frame, Uh Uh that it seemed to me that there were modernist gestures, apprehensions, techniques, not always positive, much earlier on. Uh And of course, my whole book, this book, is about British modernism, uh-huh. if you will, and its predecessors. Interesting. Fascinating, really. So so if the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood constitutes a kind of an avant-garde and a counterculture in the 19th century, how does it distinguish itself from mainstream Victorian art and literature? Of course, I'm using categories again, mainstream. That's okay. You know, but, but, and in uh, fact, you have yeah. to. In fact, Clement Greenberg says that the first settlers of Bohemia needed to know what the bourgeoisie was Uh in order to distinguish what they're not. Uh And in fact, a counterculture is very much reacting Uh, to to a dominant culture. culture, So I I endorse your terminology. One of the problems I had in writing the book, which took me a long time, is that I thought I needed to distinguish the Pre-Raphaelites from the Victorians because there are a lot of books like Victorian Romantics that emphasize their ties Uh to the earlier Romantic poets, and I kept pushing against that because I wanted to describe them as something new and different. Uh And I realized, actually, that what I'm tracing in terms of the culture of celebrity, even Uh some innovations in journalism, as well as the idea of the rise of expressive poetry and art mm-hmm. is something that the romantics, at least the poets, pioneered. But in terms of being sort of pre-Raphaelites and their countercultural influences or how they became an avant-garde and are sort of disregarded uh-huh. by theorists of the avant-garde like Peter Berger, they ignore their collective identity, their signing of their first paintings, uh-huh. PRB, They're having their own journal, The Germ, which only lasted four issues over a year, but was very influential. Their anti-bourgeois tendencies, Uh their critique of the canons of art of the day, represented by the Royal Academy and the people who are founding Uh the National Gallery, and their innovations in particularly painting, less so poetry. So I think the reason for this is that definitions of the avant-garde that see it as connected with social praxis as opposed to art for art sake aestheticism really don't understand the revaluation not only of culture but of lifestyle and sexuality and gender that the pre-Raphaelites represented. So to assume that art for art's sake is not social criticism, Uh which applies to Wilde later as well, another character in my book, I think that's naive and Uh that 
if I'm answering your question, yeah. what I wanted to yeah. fight against. No, if the modernists regard themselves as a counterculture against art for art's sake and the sort of later 19th century culture, they're not looking that hard at it, it seems to me, because the pre-Raphaelites are counterculture themselves looking at mainstream Victorian culture. And that, if I could add yeah. to that, I agree. I would say as well that there's a profound anxiety of influence, and I'm uh, not a huge oh, fan uh, of Harold uh, Bloom, uh, yes. who's actually ripping off Freud there, yeah. but, you know, the repression of the yeah. fathers, uh-huh. but uh-huh. Pound and Eliot didn't want to be indebted to anyone who came before, and you have people like Yeats, who of course is a major Irish poet and figure, saying that his whole generation was indebted to Walter Pater, uh-huh. but Eliot, who steals this notion about the sort of continuity of past and present, uh-huh. that every new poet, every great new poet changes all of literature before yeah. him, that idea comes from Pater, uh-huh. and uh-huh. yet there's a kind of attempt to discredit forebears. Yeah. And just to, I didn't answer your question well about what makes pre-Raphaelite art, which I hope we'll get into in more Uh detail, different from Victorian culture. If you wanted to compare something like Rossetti's face painting, Mm -hmm. those emphasis on the sensual heads from the Victorian painting that emphasizes woman's mission or ideals of femininity and masculinity, showing the bourgeoisie in action like Fritz's painting of the railway, the post office Mm -hmm. shopping, Uh where the bourgeoisie becomes the subject of art itself and likes to see itself Uh in its conventional social role becoming a dominant force in society. The pre-Raphaelites don't do that at all. They have completely their own agenda. Interesting. So does John Ruskin become a kind of mediating figure here between these two cultures? Absolutely. I'm a big fan of Ruskin, though I guess he would be me too out of <laughs> uh, his <laughs> well, prominent he role. Would, yeah, he would, yeah. Oh. But Ruskin was encouraged by Coventry Patmore, who wrote a poem uh-huh, yeah. from which we get the phrase as Victorian's angel of the house. Uh-huh. He was encouraged by Coventry Patmore to defend the pre-Raphaelites uh-huh. in the times against their vilifiers who thought that their strange uh-huh. techniques, the ultra-sharp focus, yeah. the lack of perspective, the antiquarianism, the bright colors, yeah. the various kinds of disruptions to conventional painting and aesthetics that they represented, they wanted Tories, let's say, Uh and conservatives in painting wanted them censured, and Ruskin wrote a defense at the Times in 1851 saying they paint like the sun paints. Uh He decided that they were all fans of the first volume of Modern Painters, which ends with the idea, the uh, admonition to go to nature, rejecting nothing, Uh selecting nothing, and sort of just, you know, accepting her with sincerity and fidelity. And that isn't, it's true and not true, but Uh anyway, Ruskin's role as having been the author of Modern Painters and becoming the foremost art critic, and Uh we we don't necessarily have to talk about that, but art criticism is relatively new in the time, Uh that he didn't sign his name John Ruskin in the Times defending the pre-Raphaelites. He signed it the author of Modern Painters, Uh and I'm very interested in this idea of imprimatur, also detached. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. identity, formation of identity, and celebrity also. Exactly. And Ruskin did have a big cachet, didn't he? He still does, but he did you know, in this period, too. Huge. Uh, yeah, yeah, with everyone. So we tend to associate modernism with technology, especially in, in the 20th, 21st centuries here. And technology also plays a role in the story about the Pre-Raphaelites and in your book in terms of the rise of affordable print publications. I'm thinking of media technology here, especially with the rise of popular journalism. And I, I wonder if you could talk about this a bit. And I suppose the question is, is print journalism a shaping societal force as well as a sort of rhetorical field where social issues are debated. I mean, is the technology itself an influence here? Absolutely. I have a lot to say about this. So I really am indebted, as many people are, to Habermas's notion of the shaping and changing public sphere. I did a lot of research about literacy mm-hmm. in the late 19th century as well as the cheapness of paper, the removal of the stamp tax, Uh other kinds of costs associated with advertising, the development of print technology that it also could reproduce images Uh and photography. Uh So one of the things I would say is that there's pretty much agreement that in England by the late 19th century, many people could read, and Mm -hmm. you can see towards the end of my book when I go over the Fleshley controversy, which Mm -hmm. is one of the many media controversies that's discussed in the book and the one that's most important to the pre-Raphaelites themselves, that 
there were reports of this controversy not only in the Athenaeum or the Contemporary Review or the Fortnightly, which were reviews for mm-hmm. well-read, sophisticated yeah. people, but there were also reviews in local newspapers, uh-huh. in down-market publications, penny publications like the Echo. Mm-hmm. And so the extension of discussions of public issues, whether they're political or social or geographic, like colonialism or the stamp tax or whatever it is, but also culture to people who ordinarily, let's say working class people, petite bourgeoisie that wouldn't ordinarily presume to have an interest in such things, uh-huh. suggests that the publicity was a major factor uh-huh. and the technology of making print cheaper, Uh as well as, I don't know if we want to call education a technology, but literacy also extended the kind of democracy of ideas and Uh culture. Literary criticism becomes very important in this time, doesn't it? So I suppose I could ask the question, what happened to it? Because we don't have any today in the mass media, it seems hardly. So this leads to the question, is the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood involved in negotiating a democratization of art and culture itself? I mean, does it play a role here in this? I mean, apart from the technology, are they interested? and appealing to the masses, I guess, is the question. So I want to preface that by saying, because it's something that is particular in the book, Uh that the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood and the Pre-Raphaelites overlap, they're continuous, and it's my argument and insistence that even though they represent different generations and intentions, that they are recognized because it's a reception history as well that the public recognizes them Uh as being on a continuum the same people but if you talk to art historians there's a lot of energy on separating out people like Edward Byrne Jones Jones from from Rossetti yes well particularly from William Holman Hunt Uh and from John Everett Millay and Uh early Rossetti who were the founders of the movement Byrne Jones was indebted to Rossetti he says I owe my whole you know Uh life as an artist to you because he trained him and Ruskin mentored him so there are a lot of connections among them I just want to specify Uh that because actually I would say that the Brotherhood Uh was more interested in I wouldn't call it democratization they were rebellious I would say they're the true avant-garde that Uh later on the other pre-Raphaelites did things in terms of sex and gender representation that were revolutionary that paved the way for people like Oscar Wilde and for men who mostly men but could be women too because they were less lesbian subject matter, or even so, just the recognition that gender fluidity and love of the same gender could be contemplated in a work of art is inspiring to people but the early Paraphylite Brotherhood understood they thought of themselves as a rebellious group, uh-huh. as a revolution against the art canons of the day, yeah. the place of art in society yeah. and when they wrote The Germ which is a combination uh-huh. of woodcuts and poems and art criticism and some religious discourse, not much uh-huh. they were really trying to promulgate their ideas and the other aspect of the propaganda which is hugely important important to me and relates to not technology but the kind of infrastructure uh-huh. of publications of the day was the role of anonymity uh-huh. because they uh-huh. had friends who were critics uh-huh. who could praise their works or talk about their works in the press. So I would say they were enormously interested in getting their word out because they thought they would be a society changing force. The later Pre-Raphaelites, though I believe their effect is profound in terms of the gender and style uh-huh. and even yeah. the way they saturated bourgeois Homes, Liberty uh-huh. of London, yeah. other kinds of firms that William Morris firm became or was a progenitor of in terms of style, that they infiltrated culture and loosened up mores. They didn't intend to do yeah. that in the same way that the early pre-Raphaelites absolutely yeah. had an avant-garde intention. So was it just the print culture that's the force of dispersal here, or is it the museum culture also? I um, wouldn't say it's museum culture because they didn't get into museums. Oh, they, yeah. And I'm very interested, one of the themes of the book, and we'll talk about Rossetti later, uh-huh. I imagine, uh-huh. is his reclusiveness because the strange thing is to have one of the celebrities of the day be someone who doesn't exhibit (laughs) after 1850 barely publishes but has a second life in the hearts and minds Uh, of a literary 
press. You could almost say he was famous for not being famous. Exactly, exactly. I did say that. In fact, in the book, I put it slightly differently. But one of the things that the Pre-Raphaelites did is they took advantage of galleries. And, of Uh course, the later Pre-Raphaelite, the Grosvenor Gallery, Sir Couts Lindsay's endeavor to represent non-traditional art was very important. But even before that, there were galleries like the Dudley in the 1860s where Simeon Solomon exhibited. But at the Royal Academy, there were Pre-Raphaelite works, but they were skied, which is an expression that yeah. means that they were above the sight line yeah. where most yeah. works Hung could way be. up at the top. Right, yeah, and so. or too low, yeah. which signified their lack of worth. What's ironic about this is Malay and also Simeon Solomon at 17 were among the youngest people ever to be exhibited in a Royal Academy show and to be praised as stars. So Malay actually gave up his gold medal and his celebrity mm. to become a pre-Raphaelite and to resist incorporation within mm. the kind of machinery of uh. the Royal Academy. You talked about anonymity, and, and it seems to be important. Is the medium, I guess is the question, is the medium itself subject to what you might call sort of growing pains here, in that it allows for anonymity? Uh, so you can have a critical literature motivated or impelled by critics who don't give their names or who give false names. So, so it's yeah. really fascinating. I mean, the early print culture in Britain, you have the Examiner, which is a radical paper, uh-huh. Blackwoods and the Blackwoods Edinburgh Magazine. This first papers were political and aligned with a political outlook. Walter Scott was very Mm -hmm. influential in the paper, the Blackwoods Magazine, where the Cockney School of Poetry, Mm -hmm. one of the early scandals was published, and it started, I think, in 1819, but went through the 20s. And at the time, an alias was in use for criticism. Initially, some creative works were published without a name, but Mm -hmm. very soon after, naming an author became de rigueur. But the papers, the early periodicals, because they represented a kind of party line and mm-hmm. the editors were seen as kind of editorial mm-hmm. board, people kind of knew who they were. I guess it's why they thought we speak in one voice, you don't need to individuate the critic. But soon over time, when these, the burgeoning print culture uh-huh. and literacy, and there's so many magazines, still anonymity was held on to, mm-hmm. even though it wasn't so clear per se. I mean, people in the media knew who wrote for which paper as an art critic or literary critic, but there was anonymity still. And oddly, the argument was that anonymity protected critical judgment and objectivity. But in fact, what we see in that day from the Fleshley School even before is a practice of puffery, which is celebrating works, maybe not on the merits, and slashing, which is another fun word for doing just the opposite and cutting things down. So I was very interested in how Mm. anonymity enabled the pre-Raphaelites, let's say the PRB, because this is going on right until Uh about the 1860s, late 60s, early 70s. I think actually the Fleshley School is instrumental Mm -hmm. in a move towards greater signature, more signed articles uh, in the period after that because the scandal associated with Robert Buchanan, who we'll talk about Uh at some point, I imagine, attacking the pre-Raphaelites, particularly Rossetti, under the cover of an alias, Thomas Maitland. But I would say even before that, that it was interesting to see how close associates of the pre-Raphaelites, some of whom were critics, some were other artists and writers who were friends, wrote very positive Uh reviews of work without anyone having any idea that this person was a close friend and even Uh Uh self-dealing, which uh is Buchanan wrote praise of his own poetry anonymously. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. But obviously, having friendly reviewers can be a tool for success, can it? Yes, but here's an odd thing, which is yet another element of the book. The Romantics also demonstrated, let's take the figure of Byron, who was vilified for not admiring Christianity, celibacy, purity, fighting (laughs) political parties and being an all-out radical, but a gentleman, that scandal was very good for the bottom Uh line uh and sold books and texts. And some of the critics who figure in my book attacked the pre-Raphaelites because they were luminaries, they were exciting, Uh they would show up as censor morum Uh about, oh, Swinburne's obscene, hoping to attract to their own party and works greater attention and praise, Uh and they were willing to take that risk because scandal, as well as affirmation and puffery, was useful for success. Yeah, and the pre-Raphaelites understood this and used it to good effect. As long as you get your name in the papers, uh, it's It's good. No such thing as bad publicity, publicity, and 
Swinburne, who was the one gentleman in the group, when he was attacked for poems and ballads in 1866, which is neither the Cockney School nor the Fleshley School Review, but a scandal that happens around poems and ballads, he wrote vituperative attacks on his critics, Mm -hmm. something called Notes on Poems and Reviews, another thing under the microscope, and then anonymous works Uh making fun of them. Mm -hmm. And the papers reported on all these things because Swinburne said such wonderfully funny things. He had a really sharp tongue. But some of them also questioned why Swinburne, in defending his works against the opprobrium that they were simply lewd and obscene and not art and that it was a disgrace that they should be published, that he would defend them in a way that made them sound more immoral no. and more unchristian <laughs> and blasphemous yeah. than yeah. even the first yeah. iteration yeah. did. Yeah. It's all poetry. So. Well, then what about the figure of the artist in this time? And you talk a lot in the book about celebrity culture and the arts and the, the notion of the coterie or the, the mutual appreciation society that we've been talking about. Maybe we just answered that question, really. We were no, talking I think about it's, celebrity. it's yeah. important because mm-hmm. there's new work on celebrity. I'm indebted to theorists of celebrity like John Roche, and Sharon Marcus has just published a book about celebrity culture, and she theorizes celebrity. I don't necessarily agree with her periodization, but I can't argue with her notion, mm-hmm. which she gets also from Roche, of the paradoxical nature of celebrity, that they represent distance and proximity, virtues uh-huh. and vices. Uh-huh. They're incongruous in uh-huh. their attractions and so forth. But she insists on the theater as the model or paradigm for celebrity, uh-huh. that they have uh-huh. to entail presence and absence. Uh-huh. And so her notions that Oscar Wilde learned how to be a celebrity for Sarah Bernhardt. It's a wonderful chapter in her uh-huh. book that was an article in PMLA, wonderful about the play Oscar Wilde wrote called Salome in 1891, uh-huh. that Salome is really about the drama oh, of celebrity. Sarah yeah. Bernhardt oh, was going to yeah. play the role. Wonderful, brilliant argument. However, it's all focused on image-based celebrity, uh-huh. and I'm very uh-huh. interested in history, and I'm interested in this transformation, which Richard Sennett has written about, the sort of fall of the public man, of what happens in the late 18th century, early 19th century, when people, and again, this is associated with print culture. Without Mm, print culture, you don't have a wide sense of celebrity. Not enough people can participate in it. Mm -hmm. But with the emergence of print culture, and I guess you would say theater reviews and other things, it wasn't photographs or even etchings of artists or writers that were distributed because it was expensive to do so Mm -hmm. and very few people could afford them, although obviously there were woodblocks and other kinds of print material at the time. But the the personality of the artist or writer, I should say, entered the domain of celebrity through expressive personality Mm -hmm. and the way that work could reveal something of that kind. So when you look at someone like Rossetti, who was considered this very hot, sultry poet exploring very minutely and passionately his own inner life and emotions or or the romantics Keats Byron example of this kind of sensationalism appealed to people and drove celebrity culture in a way so this idea of expressive personality but also in tension with Victorian notions of emotional incontinence and I think that the thing about celebrity that I want to carry or take away with me from Roche and from Marcus I'm just using their names to summarize what other people have written Piers Passanati, that the thing about celebrity, and this relates to a question about Kohat Otto Rank and yeah. some of the people that I talk about later, where the celebrity shadows forth values that are culturally central, they're on the horizon, they're not fully present, and the, the celebrity embodies them in a way that people can grasp and get a taste of, Uh but they're not to be emulated. They represent Uh also a danger zone, and the sense of distance is very important. Uh Like, you might all want to be part of, you think about the 60s, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, Mick Jagger, very exciting, Rolling Stones. I was just thinking of Mick Jagger modeling himself on Tina Turner, actually. Yeah, Yeah, exactly, exactly. And James Brown. But but there's a way in which they're not models of behavior, but they represent emotional high points or new forms of gender, psychological, sexual expression on the horizon. Interesting. So is this in part then a performative thing, do you think? I mean, I I, I wonder about the whole notion of charisma, which... Yes, charisma is so important. Which is a keystone of Western education coming out of the Middle Ages, where it's felt that you can actually train people to be charismatic and other people want to follow them. I mean, the saints are the models. 
but it's the reason we have the liberal arts. Uh, oh, that's you know, so com- fascinating. Com- of, yeah, that uh, isn't my period. Schools. That's yeah. your period. I had no idea. Coming out of the cathedral yeah. schools, yeah. So there's an attempt to make people into charismatic individuals, and there's just certainly a recognition that this is an important part of existence, although they're as unable to actually define what it is as we are. But it seems to be there, doesn't it? Uh, I absolutely think so, and I'm... Yeah. T- beholden to you for making this connection that I would not have been aware of because charisma really does enter the public sphere in a way that I understand it in the late 18th, early 19th century. And you look at Hunt and Millet, I think their works were early on considered charismatic when they got tired of medievalism and Millet was lured by fortune in 1853. He became a member of the Royal Academy and eventually its president, Rossetti, was a recluse by 1853 or four. He went off with a new group of people who were interested in the Middle Ages. Hunt was mm-hmm, yeah. became a religious zealot. A, well, I consider him a religious zealot. He went off to the Holy Land to paint pictures yeah. on location and the original group was fractured in this way. Some of the friendships survived not only, but Rossetti, because of his reclusiveness and because of the people who adulated him, and it's clearly associated with his charisma, continued to live in the afterlife of the PRB Uh, as uh, the one person who maintained uh, their values, uh, that sacred flame, which is ironic considering that nobody saw his work and he didn't publish again. I mean, he published translations of the works of Dante and the Italian poets, but it wasn't until 1870, that's 20 years after his... The end of his exhibiting of paintings, right? This brief span of time, 1849, 1850, then he's done with public exhibitions. He doesn't publish a book of poems until 1870. I think we should give some time to the different personalities we've been talking about, a little more time possibly. So can you talk about Rossetti a bit more to begin with, as well as maybe his brother and his sister, who was a very interesting person, Christina? Yeah, I have less to say about her, but... Yes, I'd love to talk about Rossetti. I haven't been reviewed a lot. If I lived in England, I might have gotten more attention because people here don't know who the Paraphylites uh-huh. are or care. Nevertheless, some few reviews don't understand what I'm trying to do with Rossetti, and maybe it's because I haven't done it well. But the chapter's called Gabrielle Rossetti, Aesthetic Celebrity. Mm-hmm. One of the things about Rossetti, part of the myth-making and part of what interests me, is I go back to the founding myths concerning Rossetti, which mm-hmm. he engineered and his brother William Michael Rossetti, who was like Goethe and Eckhart, you know, uh-huh. walking yeah, around taking yeah, notes yeah, about uh-huh. everything yeah. he said uh-huh. he did yeah, yeah. and contributed mightily to the written record of Gabriel's life following his death and sometimes before. Mm-hmm. But I'm also interested in how people like Jerome McGann, who's the foremost Rossetti scholar, they really harp on this idea of Rossetti being unworldly and spiritual and mystic and how if he made painting by numbers for his clients, poetry was pure. And part of this is related to something that I do believe is important about the PRB, which is their resentment, and you see this with Baudelaire, also an avant-garde figure, the hatred of the art commodity and Mm -hmm. the absolute Uh desire to preserve the aura of art Uh in a time of kind of mercantile aesthetics. And Rossetti did sell works of art. He made a picture of his wife, who was probably a suicide, but even if she wasn't, she died very young. Beata Beatrix, which hangs in the Tate Gallery today, uh-huh. he made about seven of them in crayon, other painted versions of the thing. And he sold them in the first place. He complimented himself on his judiciousness in selling the painting mm-hmm. to a couple of gentle people, but later he made copies of the image for his mercantile clients and the notion of the commodified work of art but his poetry is pure actually Rossetti was obsessed with fame and reputation mm-hmm. and their paradoxes about him being reclusive his disregard for fame there's a wonderful quotation from George du Maurier who mm-hmm. made so many cartoons of not only wild but I think many of those cartoons that are supposedly about wild are actually about the pre-Raphaelites as well that Du Maurier met Rossetti Hunt and Simeon Solomon at Simeon Solomon's house, and he talked about how Rossetti is so great because the other Paraphylites, Hunt and Millet, are spoiled by their popularity, but Rossetti has a grand contempt for fame. And this is actually a myth, being a recluse but working the sort of enigmatic reputation building behind Mm -hmm. the scenes. Anyway, Rossetti was, I'm not so much trying to vilify him, I think that another kind of 
biographer would just call him bipolar and have done with it. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. he certainly suffered from paranoia uh-huh. and depression. He was addicted to drugs. Yeah. He was a philanderer, as they would have yeah. said. If you were a Freudian, you would look for the trauma in your youth. And yeah. being the boy wonder, the way people, oh, I, I think I write yeah. about this okay. later, yeah. that the people that love him in the 20th century think of him only in his youth and not in his drug-addled yeah. years. But again, here's uh-huh. another thing. The Victorian critic, the Ruskins, and even sort of post-Victorian critics like Evelyn Waugh, uh-huh. who wrote about Rossetti. And following Rossetti's death, there's a whole... Uh, uh, yeah, you had to wade through all the biography, didn't you? Well, it yeah. wasn't wading. It was fun, because it was, it's yeah. fascinating oh, to uh, see how many people, people he knew, like... T. Hall Kane and William Sharp, who were minor literary celebrities in their own right, all started out. John Macefield uh-huh. writing biographies of Rossetti. It was like something to do to get published and then move on from that into your own literary reputation. He's always connected with reputation building, which I find fascinating. But another piece of this is that the Victorian notion of the artist is someone who is going to be Promethean in his rise and in his fall as well. And so when we see in his later years that Rossetti is taking drugs, he was addicted to plural, I think, it helped him sleep, he still actually had a power of improvement. And so the narrative that he's more despicable morally or that his Uh paintings are more sensuous or all of his best work, for instance, is Beata Beatrix, that this is a high point in his moral and aesthetic being. Mm -hmm. Actually, he painted that 10 years after his wife died when he was supposedly in the throes of his drug addiction Uh and drinking and depression. So I'm very interested in all of the myths around Rossetti, and I'm not trying to settle on one as uh the truth. Uh And that is something that I guess I didn't make clear because I guess I pushed back against the notion that he was so pure and didn't engineer any of these positive reviews of his work. You you do make a case that there's a sort of arc here, a biographical arc, that's an imposition of the whole notion of an artistic biography. Exactly, that, 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 that sort of Hayden yeah, White's yeah, yeah, notion exactly, yeah, of uh, implotment. Yeah, 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 so. So you understand. Yeah, I did, <laughs> yeah. I did, yeah, yeah. Can you then talk about Buchanan and the role Buchanan plays in his life here? who's a kind of nemesis, isn't he? Yes. Uh, um, very planned nemesis, but he's a nemesis. Uh, right, and here's something I thought was rather clever of me, or how I want to differentiate uh-huh. my work from other works. There's a work by Rachel Tucholsky called The Literate Eye, which tends to emphasize the dominant critical voices of the 19th century. Mm. It's one of the first works. It's about 10 years older than mine, to sort of recognize the emergence of Victorian art criticism mm-hmm. and its importance to contemporary art at that time. But I think that anonymous voices, that minor voices, mm-hmm. I'm really interested in uh. people who also had import in their day, who vanished from literary history. So Buchanan is remembered as a person who stung, you know, he's like a little a little mosquito yeah. who stung to death quite unbelievably this great genius Rossetti, a king among men, artists, and writers. And the double work of art, Rossetti's work, you know, poetry was considered very important Mm -hmm. at the time, too. And he was adulated for having these gifts, which is related, maybe we can talk about the sister arts later and how that functioned as a trope. But Buchanan was a poor Scotch Boy, his father had been a printer. He wrote some. I think it was religious and not political. Suddenly, Buchanan found himself talk about trauma at mm-hmm. nine years old, uh-huh. hated by all of his school friends because his father had done something unpopular, insulted religion. His father was an atheist. I guess that's uh-huh. what it is. It's coming back to me. And Buchanan went to England to try his fortunes. He prostrated himself before people like Browning and uh-huh. Hepworth Dixon yeah. and the editor of the fortnightly, George Lewis, who was George Eliot's not really husband, but partner. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's what we say today, partner. Uh-huh. And just did everything he could to inveigle himself into a career in the literary arts Mm. and he made a living as many people did that was a big novelty of the age of print in that you could write reviews and make a living doing that he was a poet as well he had a couple of things happen to him that made him a pre-Raphaelite nemesis one is that Swinburne's poems and ballads came out exactly the same month a little earlier Uh than his London poems and 
everyone on earth was celebrating Swinburne or or vilifying him, scandal, right? And Buchanan was very upset not to be noticed with his poems about peasants Mm -hmm. and women abandoned by unworthy priests who Uh got them pregnant Uh and so forth. And so he wrote an essay called Anonymous Journalism in which he attacked impropriety in the arts because he knew that would go over well. And Mm -hmm. he attacked Swinburne. He called him, he made a reference to him as being Gito, which is a character in Petronius' Satyricon, who's a kind of hermaphrodite Uh and is the hermaphroditic object of affection of various characters and this is obscene and offensive and he called them the, the downy lip yeah. bard and made fun of Swinburne and Swinburne took his revenge on him as well but they didn't he didn't know who Buchanan was uh-huh. at first then of course through their literary friends they yeah. were able to find things out uh-huh. plus Buchanan occasionally published under his own name uh-huh. when he thought it would suit him so he was someone who wore aliases published anonymously published under his own name all devising means to become famous Mm -hmm. and actually for someone who prided himself on being a scotch moralist even Mm -hmm. though he was not a believer in god he was a vegetarian that's the one thing i like about him but i try to be fair to him yeah you felt sorry for the guy i I do i do but he's full of contradictions Uh first of all he's probably in love with someone named david gray Uh uh, but uh he attacks homoeroticism in the arts without understanding what it is and swinburne ingeniously picks up on this and torments buchanan (laughs) with his you know affection for this poor boy poet david gray who caught his death of cold and died before he could be buried Mm. in Westminster Abbey, which was his goal. But then later on, when Buchanan publishes the Book of Orm, Rossetti's Poems has come out, and again, it's the same month, more or less, and Rossetti's Poems are sometimes compared to Buchanan's Poems. And again, Buchanan's like, ah, this fraternity of championship, the Mutual Admiration Society. And there were many people who didn't like this. And in fact, William Michael Rossetti... Gabriel's brother said to all their friends, and they have, you know, it's William Morris, it's yeah, Swinburne, yeah. it's Sidney Colvin, yeah. and the whole bunch of people, Swinburne, maybe I mentioned him already, you know, who could write and attack Buchanan. They were trying to figure out who wrote this yeah, fleshly uh-huh. school thing. It's anonymous. We're going to get him. And eventually they found out who wrote it. But William cautioned them all. He said, listen, if you publish, it'll be just a confirmation of what Buchanan says, uh-huh. that a fraternity of championship, a clique, a mutual uh-huh. admiration society protects Gabriel against criticism. So that was a true objection uh-huh. to the circle, and there were other reviews that published anonymously. We can't know, or I don't know anyway. Yeah, I yeah. tried to find out who was writing for Must the Saturday Review. It's fun to read these things. Um, oh, yes. Well, yeah, they're so very yeah. small. The print yeah, is so uh-huh. tiny. Yeah. Oh, okay. so it hurts yeah. one's eyes. Uh, it's very worthwhile yeah. and reading everything you can find. And I'm indebted to technology because uh-huh. I did this, I started this 20 years ago. I went to the library and I was digging around. I even saw you there in uh-huh. the art library digging around in these big books. But now, yeah. because of the databases, yeah. you can go online and find many of these books or articles without having, yeah. yeah, a little bit, but, yeah. but without having to literally go through a 300 oh. page oh, volume oh, oh, trying yeah, to oh, find yeah, something yeah. on the yeah. Fleshly School Contract. Uh, Another theme in your book, homoeroticism plays an important but often overlooked role in the kind of cultural negotiations that are going on in this literature, as well as sexuality in general, at least until Oscar Wilde comes on the scene when it becomes, you know, overt. So I wonder if you can talk about especially Simeon Solomon and the way same-sex attraction informs the countercultural discourse in this environment before the modern movement. Yes, I'd love to do that, and I'd even like to go a little bit earlier. I'm interested in the way that some homoerotic or bohemian cliques in New York were interested in or other people understood early pre-Raphaelite work to be sensuous and fleshly before that word was in use in the 1870s to attack that kind of Titian-esque painting of courtly ladies, you know, in in sensuous garb with big lips and eyes. And so one of the arguments of the book is that, and I won't dwell on this, Uh but that as we get into the Grosvenor era, even in the 1850s with Rossetti's privately exhibited, publicly written about Mm -hmm. through the aegis of his friends and reviewers, I'm privileged to record what Rossetti's doing Mm -hmm. in his studio. Simeon Solomon's works are being displayed at the Dudley Gallery that 
by the time we get to the Grosvenor and Byrne Jones, who is a fleshly mm -hmm. painter as well as a symbolist painter and very indebted to Simeon Solomon's mm -hmm. work, and I will come back to yeah. Simeon Solomon, by the time we get to the Grosvenor, which is the great celebrity for Byrne Jones yeah, in particular, uh, yeah. Suddenly, the people who love the early PRB are busy cleaning up their act. Uh -huh. And Rossetti's death follows in 1882. Yeah. There's a huge emphasis also on associating Rossetti's sensuality with his mysticism and spirituality that in The Palm-Handed Soul, which is published in the German in the 1850, he's looking for, it's an artist looking for a feminine soul. Mm -hmm. And this is one way to uh -huh. understand eroticism uh -huh. that cleans it up quite a bit. Yeah, uh -huh. So I'm very interested in the desire to distance the PRB from any shade of homoeroticism, uh -huh. which is so evident not only in Burne Jones's work, its indebtedness to Simeon Solomon, mm -hmm. but in the emotional incontinence associated with Rossetti's worship of women. Uh -huh. So there's a way uh -huh. in which, because we need to be contextual at this time and to think about what it meant to be virile, heterosexual, yes, uh -huh. and manly in the 19th century, well, in certain part of the mid-19th century, that worshiping women, being sensual and not professional, the sort of emergence of the Protestant gentleman and, mm -hmm. and continence, which has always been an English virtue anyway, self-control, that Rossetti's love of women was considered deeply unmanly, and I trace this in the uh -huh. criticisms not only of Buchanan's, yeah. but also of his uxoriousness and his adoration of women in The House of Life, uh -huh. which is published in 1882, but it's part of poems yeah. in 1870. So so there is a whole atmosphere also, the coterie feeling, the mutual admiration society, the charisma around Rossetti. I'm not claiming that Gabriel Rossetti is a closeted homosexual, and I'm not interested in anybody's actual activities. Uh -huh. Many of these people, like Swinburne, were probably celibate, although he yeah. did pay to have himself flogged by dominatrixes in St. <laughs> John's Wood. But he wrote about yeah. lesbianism, he wrote about homosexuality, he wrote about every kind yeah. of sexuality. So there's a phantasmatic thing going on there. But what interests me is a kind of aroma of male charisma and the men who are attracted to that, uh -huh. and whether they're conscious uh -huh. of, you know, this is an idea whether you want to possess someone and love them, uh -huh. or if you want to be them, there's a kind of adolescent yeah, uh -huh. uncertainty yeah. about, I mean, it's as old as the Oedipus complex, yeah. the idea that there's somebody who's a gender model and uh -huh. there's somebody a model of desire, uh -huh. and I think for many people, Rossetti sat just at the nexus at yeah, this, where they didn't understand their partisanship as being fueled by this homoerotic desire. Shouldn't yeah. I call it homoerotic admiration? Yeah. I don't care if they slept with each other. Yeah. And why was this so necessary to Rossetti, though he's associated as a painter of women, a lover of women. He's so promiscuous. He always has a group of male friends uh -huh. around him, except yes, for yeah. that brief time uh -huh. with Siddle where people felt pushed aside. Yeah. Ruskin is another one of these yeah, people uh -huh. who has the same. He's always trying to have a friendship with a wonderful male writer, artist. He loved Swinburne, despite the fact that Swinburne wrote obscene poetry, blasphemous poetry. This is the absolute opposite tenor yeah. of the whole trend in Ruskin's work yeah, and criticism. Calvinism, yeah. Adored him. Yeah, uh -huh. Adored Swinburne. And so this interests me. Solomon in particular is a Jewish Catholic convert, mm -hmm. an alcoholic, an openly homosexual man who was arrested when he was arrested in 1873 for soliciting sex with a workman in a public toilet mm -hmm. before the Labisher Amendment of 1885. And you know, there's a whole history of criminality and homosexuality yeah. in England and Europe. Sometimes it's a slap on the wrist. Sometimes you get yourself hanged. At the time mm -hmm. that this happened to Solomon, there was social outrage and embarrassment, but there was he was just sent to the workhouse yeah. for a month. His closest friends, with the exception of Byrne Jones and Pater, all are like, yeah, I don't right. know who you are. Yeah. Yeah. And they distance themselves. Right, but yeah. this is related to the idea of being a mutual admiration society, uh -huh. and Swinburne, uh -huh. who was very close to Solomon, and they both apparently slid down the stairway of Tudor House naked yeah. while they were in residence there with Rossetti, and they mm. shared, as I show in my book, homoerotic fantasies about birching. Swinburne went to public school and was uh. constantly being punished on his bare buttocks with a, a rod for getting his no math, yeah. math skills wrong. Yes, uh, but anyway, the, the eroticism of that, which I see as homoerotic because it involves men and boys, etc., although it gets, gets transferred in practice to the dominatrix in mm -hmm. his own personal life that the minute 
Swinburne sees that the whole public is aware, they understand that their circle of friends is aware of Solomon's criminal, mm-hmm. as they see it, homosexuality, they sort of like, I never noticed it. And they yeah. made jokes about it before that. Uh-huh. So there's a real attempt yeah. to distance themselves. Solomon's paintings and pictures and drawings, they have two themes. One of them is Judaism, and there are images of women there. And at first, he's a painter of sort of biblical scenes mm-hmm, like yeah. you know, Moses and Rachel or something. But then later, when he goes, as he says, his own sweet way, he's making portraits of figures like Dionysus is one of his famous images or Saccharomortis things he makes up of nude, very feminine men. And the criticism all supports this anxiety about the gender dubiety Mm. of these subjects. And Wilde mentions him. That's another interesting thing that at the Grosvenor Gallery, and I'll stop, that's where Wilde appears for the first time. He's published a poem. Ravenna, I think, won an award. This is 1877. Wilde is writing. He's a MA student, if you will, at Oxford. One of his first published works is his review of the Grosvenor Gallery. Mm-hmm. He's arrived at the Grosvenor in a suit of his own design that looks like something, a kind of precursor to what Dolly War <laughs> did. Yeah. It's a suit yeah. from behind that looks like a cello. Oh. And he and Burne Jones meet at this event and become great Uh friends Uh and in his review of you know as a student in his review in the Edinburgh monthly magazine I think it is of the Grosvenor he asked that question where is the strange genius who wrote love revealed in sleep which is one of these curious things where he's referring to Solomon as a poet when in fact he's better known as an artist but he's also referencing for an inner circle Mm -hmm. because he's not part of the inner circle yet of these true Uh pre-Raphaelites that are exhibited in the Grosvenor Uh with the exception of Rossetti who didn't submit a work it's another thing, but was asked to that he's connecting and says in the article, Ruskin, Watts, Burne Jones, Rossetti, Morris, but he doesn't mention Solomon by Morris name. Yeah, well. So it's a kind of funny awareness of the touchstone of the sort yeah. of banished homoerotic. So we don't see uh, Solomon's works reproduced very often, do we? No. They're hard to find. Can I tell you a funny story? Yeah, sure. So while I was working on this book, I thought it was a sign. I had gone to the Met, and I was with my daughter, and we were standing in front of the store, Eat, where you can get good candy. Uh And I see across the street at a gallery, I've forgotten the name, on 79th Street, an image, a banner, it's about two feet by two feet, uh-huh. of what has to be a Simeon Solomon uh-huh. head. And I think, I'm in New York City. No one knows who these people uh-huh. are. This is crazy. And I went over to the gallery. I know the name. I just can't remember it. I still get mail from them. And they have Simeon Solomon oh, drawings. And there's somebody at the Met who owns that famous image uh-huh. about love among the schoolboys, uh-huh. which I'd like to get for Vassar if uh-huh. I could <laughs> get great. my hands on it. It's really important <laughs> yeah. drawing. Yeah. But I'm like, Talk Simeon Bart, Solomon Simeon, in New yeah. York. Yeah. Bart Thurberg, the uh, oh, okay, yeah, or, I, or Mary Kay Lambino. So, but I think we have an acquisitions budget of some kind. So. I don't know if this fellow is willing yeah, to sell yeah, it, but, but and yeah. if I'd known earlier, the best yeah. things had been in the catalog and been sold. Okay, should yeah, have had okay. some. He's a figure, you know, hidden from history. Yeah, um, he yeah. is. Yeah, he's been completely banished. Yeah, amnesia. Yeah. Yeah. Like Buchanan, who nobody knows at all. But anymore. the difference yeah. is that Solomon's work is closer to the quality of Rossetti's yes, and Burne uh-huh. Jones and very yeah. influential. Buchanan's poems are dreadful. Yeah. Yeah, rightfully so. Yeah. So in a way there was a kind of poetic justice there and that the people who were really talented do seem to have survived and despite all his own efforts to change that, you know, by sniping or But it is an irony. I mean I think it's partly because of this negative publicity is good publicity yeah, and uh-huh. the romantics yeah. started that and, and Oscar Wilde capitalized uh-huh. it on it. But even though I agree with that, you know, the good one out in the end, yeah. that it wasn't happenstance. It was yeah. really because of the sort of engine of reviewers uh-huh. and friends oh, who uh, made sure uh, yeah. and they preserved the record. Yeah. So no reason necessarily to think that the good will win out in our own day. Uh, no. Uh, also, yeah. Back to Buchanan then, do, do his criticisms of the pre-Raphaelites have any merit? Or? In a way, but he yeah. was such a hypocrite because, yeah. I mean, Oswald Doughty, who is a Rossetti biographer, called him a liar in the grain. Uh-huh. And if you look through uh, Buchanan's poetic works, which I have done, I've read yes, them, yeah. he wrote a poem 
called hermaphroditus. So it's like, oh, let's get in on this action. And he yeah. was even criticized by someone writing under a pseudonym. I'm really interested in the pseudonyms, yeah, too. Yeah. He's just like, who are these people? And you think you've got a name, but yeah. you don't have a name, saying you know that actually a poem like Little Nell uh-huh. is immoral uh-huh. and unworthy to be <laughs> yeah. put beside Liz yeah, because yeah. you know, you're know you offending the yeah. censors as well. I yeah. think that the mutual admiration critique is just... Uh-huh. I think that he's useful in that he understood the sensuality of the pre-Raphaelites. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. I think he understood that as something immoral that should be shut down. Whereas if you were a closeted gay man in 1860, you might have been attracted to the church because uh-huh. of the male yeah. cloistered yeah. existence yeah. and the room yeah. for male friendship and intimacy there. But if you had gone to the Dudley Gallery and seen Simeon Solomon's drawings, Pastel's paintings, you would have said, I'm not alone in the world. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's what Wilde said. Yeah. There are a lot of people who responded to this work right. in that way. Yeah. I kept thinking if Buchanan were alive today, he'd be sitting at a podium at Fox News. Maybe that's not fair. but uh, Well, he was a vegetarian, yeah. so maybe okay. he would <laughs> maybe, not, maybe not. No, I, I absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the moral censor aspect with yeah. the hypocrisy, yes. yeah, exactly. and, yeah. and I don't think he understood. I mean, I'm actually interested in that that the articulation of homosexuality as a choice or possibility for people was not clarified in the medical discourse until maybe 1879. And so he writes with complete innocence about David Gray having Uh been born with a breath of hip and least some limbs, graceful limbs, Uh and a poetic sensibility that suggests nature originally meant him for a woman. So there are all kinds of things that speak to the affection between brother lovers that even when he reads Whitman, he reads him Uh as purely spiritual, and there's a whole thing about his Uh hypocrisy and attacking Appreciated Walt Whitman, didn't yeah. he? Not not many people did. So that was well, the Paraphalites did. Oh, they did on the whole. Yeah, they? William yeah, yeah, Michael yeah. Rossetti also yeah. collected uh-huh. Whitman's poems. Uh-huh. It was one of the first editions uh-huh. of Whitman published in England, though he omitted about it's like 124 lines yeah. of indecent verse. Uh-huh. It's fascinating, yeah. really, and yeah. that that didn't console Buchanan. No. He still wanted to be their yeah. enemy. Yeah, fascinating. So toward the end of the book, you mention Otto Rank and his statement that the trajectory of the artist is pulled between concerns of what uh, maybe Carl Jung would have called individuation on one side, the individual person, and on the other, the artist's societal obligations. So I wonder if you have any thoughts or final thoughts about that. Too many, too many. I have a lot. I thought it was a really profound, complex that you presented there. It spreads out over all of our history, but especially in this period. Right, and I think that's right because I think one of the things that befell Rossetti and happened to other great artists, it's impossible to be novel and Uh avant-garde all the time. And so Uh Donald Uh Cuspitt, who's talked about, I think he wants to call it the avant-garde complex, where you see this, it happened to the PRB, and it's one reason I wanted to return their avant-garde status to them because they were appropriated and imitated. First, the thing that happens with the avant-garde, it's reviled and rejected Mm -hmm. for its attack on society, for its attack on the canons of art and morals of the day, sort of negative, you know, the original negativity of the work makes it, as Joust says, makes it hated. Mm -hmm. Then the audience gets used to it, critics get used Mm -hmm. to it, artists get used to it, so the horizon of expectation, Uh as Joust says, collapses people no longer are offended by it then it's imitated then the original negativity of the work its originality Uh its avant-garde qualities are missing and so that's sort of lost to history and so that's one aspect of it it is it is is. and I went all over England with my daughter I got a grant a Susan Turner grant from the college to have I wanted to get some unhackneyed illustrations for my book because most of what's produced, everybody has seen, and we went all over the north of England. Yeah, I was going to say, you must have gone up to Birmingham. Oh, Birmingham, but Carlisle, Newcastle, places people never set foot, Manchester. Yes, Birmingham was the first stop, Uh Leeds, Liverpool, and... There were wonderful things, especially in Thule House in Carlisle, where they have a lot of Simeon Solomon's work uh-huh. and things that, and Rossetti drawings. This uh-huh. notion that Rossetti only did these torsos yeah. and you know faces yeah. is yeah. untrue. He's continued mm-hmm. to do narrative uh-huh. painting and drawing later in his career. But anyway, in relation to this, the thing that I found interesting here is the way that Otto Rank and also Heinz Kohut 
insisted that the art for art's sake movement, and this relates, it's sort of a bridge between the artists being torn between individuality and social role, uh-huh. the avant-garde definition and concern is also aligned with this notion of celebrity uh-huh. or the representative new man, if this makes any uh-huh. sense. So yeah. where Donald Cuspin might tell you that the avant-garde figure is appropriated, and, and think of Andy Warhol, yeah. I mean, for the five minutes that he yeah. could be considered new and original. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. 15 minutes, right. <laughs> That's right. That's a better example. Yeah. But... The thing that interested me is the insistence, Peter Berger, the theorist of the avant-garde, there are many more, I'll just use him as a handle, absolutely no art for art's sake figure, Oscar Wilde, none of those figures could be considered avant-garde truly, because art for art's sake isn't about social praxis, it's not connected with the critique of society, Mm -hmm. like, because you don't see the personal as political, because you can't see in what terms that a reformation of the notion, the sort of monadic individualism, or different couplings Mm -hmm. along lines that are not consonant with the bourgeois family, Mm -hmm. and ideas Mm -hmm. of property, propriety, religion, education, Mm -hmm. they were enormously disruptive and subversive and it's the same thing with Kohut and Heinz, you know, Heinz Kohut but also Otto Rank here in saying that their pre-Raphaelites and the esthetes who are still the pre-Raphaelites yeah. and the PRB yeah. cannot qualify because the true artist is a person who goes back to a definition of celebrity I gave when we're talking about the romantics that is concerned with the principle worries and sort of on the cusp, we talked about the new modes of expression and feeling and identity that are on the horizon, uh-huh. and so they're a preoccupation of society, but that it's very important, according to Otto Rank and Heinz Kohut, that society be aware of them. Like, you have to be in the forefront, but you can't be ahead of the curve. Uh-huh. And I'm with Ezra Pound in this. Uh-huh. Artists are the antenna of the race. Uh-huh. So one of the things that interests me, and that's why I use phenomenology uh-huh. and jowls, uh-huh. is that, that, in fact, the pre-Raphaelites didn't pick up some bohemian tension of the day and turn it into rock and roll, let's say. They actually led. Uh They actually figured, you know, they represented gender and sexual dissonance. Do they shape they do. I believe they do. Shape gender and sexuality. I believe they do. That's quite amazing, you know. Yes. Think about it. I mean, we have had that happen in the '60s here with you know Jimi Hendrix and company, but but some of that was already there. there. I mean, I don't want to short, you know, deprive them of their deserved repute. But Uh, and it interests me because Otto Rank is like, oh, the formation of cliques around an exciting individual doesn't happen until uh, modernism. Like wrong, so wrong. So this is. The best definition of pre-raphaelitism I've ever seen. Yeah, okay, okay, wonderful. Yeah. So, you know, we're talking about people and ideas. Uh, can you say something a bit about pre-raphaelite art itself? Yeah, I would like to do so because I have a whole chapter devoted, Uh the third chapter, Fortune's Wheel, to the reception of the Uh pre-Raphaelites. So on the one hand, I'm very interested, and this relates to their influence, the question that you asked me about, did they change anything Uh or just sort of a novel uh, style of the day? And they're more than a style, I really believe that. But I'm also interested in their stylistic influence and how confusing they are because when we look at them today, they have a lot of medieval subject matter. Mm -hmm. The double work of art is often a poem from the Middle Ages, Mm -hmm. some Dante-esque sonnet, not original work of Mm -hmm. art, although some of it is original. Rossetti wrote poems for pictures. But the sense of how antiquarian the work feels, but the defamiliarization Mm -hmm. of the antiquarian. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you'd have someone like Mm -hmm. Dickens in 1850 in Household Words, waxing eloquent, with vitriol about <laughs> Millet's painting Christ in the house of his parents and uh-huh. raving about there's a like pre-perspective brotherhood that this sort of thing about how a man is seen shaving in the near distance along with Alps in the far distance <laughs> yeah. and everything uh-huh. is confused and that they're going to have a pre-Raphaelite brotherhood which will print books and print that nobody can read but in terms of this particular picture the idea that Christ looks like a little boy with red hair in a bedgown who's had a nasty fall in the gutter and the stigmata looks like a poke Uh in the you know in the hand the stick and the mother with a dislocated neck these pictures with their use of space Rossetti later use of the shingle style and some of Uh his watercolors the all-over pattern treatment the lack of recession into the picture back 
background. They used new colors. They painted outside before the Impressionists yeah. did. They understood they didn't like chiaroscuro, wow. and they realized that shadows weren't gray, shades of gray wow. and black, that they used color, color to indicate yes. shade. Yeah, before and, the Impressionists. Right. So, There's yeah. tremendous novelty oh, to their yeah. work, and it was deeply disturbing to people. And even where they had religious content, there were anomalies. So people would notice in people that sort of followed the Pre-Raphaelites, there's a critic named Frederick Wedmore who wrote under his own name, mm-hmm. who was looking at sort of Greek pictures by Alma Tadema and mm-hmm. others. They would look at these pictures and say, what is a violin doing an image of 300 BC painting and the interjection of modern elements into paintings that otherwise look historical or archaic? To me, the great pre-Raphaelite brainwork, which is a phrase of Rossetti, Mm -hmm. is Nietzschean. I know this sounds absurd, but it's using the past to think through modern problems uh-huh. and potential solutions to them. Uh-huh. And so I think both technically but conceptually the Pre-Raphaelites, the Brotherhood and later iterations of Pre-Raphaelitism are really important uh-huh. and worth scrutinizing uh-huh. anew. Yeah, in the history of art then, particularly. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. exactly. Yeah, interesting, fascinating. And, and yet I think because art historicism, as I understand it, is so detail-oriented and afraid of the things that it views as generalizations uh-huh. about the social context yeah. for uh-huh. art, the aspects of their work and what nature they challenge society, particularly around gender and sexuality, has been minimized. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, something I so, wanted yeah. to restore yeah, to the conversation. Well, well, does. So, so the book has been out a couple of years. Have you had much feedback? Uh-huh. There was one review, and it makes perfect sense. It was in like the Pre-Raphaelite newsletter, uh-huh. and the editor of it was so happy to supply it to me. It was really nice. He's uh-huh. like, I don't know if I want to give this to you. You're not going to like it. And the person said that this book is written, every page is like crammed with information uh-huh. and ideas, and you know, it's unbearable to read and I actually I wanted to do that and one thing I'd like to say about this is the irony for me of people who love pre-raphletism resenting I guess that I have my storytelling is so crowded with stories and Uh ideas and multi-layered how can someone who loves pre-raphletism with the crowded yeah. picture plane <laughs> and the obsession with incident and detail, word, that was yeah, the point is, of yeah, it. I yeah, thought so that yeah, I could yeah. do that in the stacked yeah. time approach, yeah. no, which they have. Yeah. I thought that I could do that, no. too. Yeah, no, it seemed very I should very probably Victorian. explain that. Yeah. So I'd like to thank you, Wendy, for visiting with us on the Library Cafe today to talk about your book, Critics, Critics. Coteries, and Pre-Raphaelite Celebrity, published by Columbia in 2017. Yes, thank you so much. Well, th- thanks for coming.